Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 11 on Shakespeare's Richard III. Finally, getting to the good stuff. Sophie, are you glad? (laughs) Am I glad? Yeah, yes and yeah, yeah, a little bit. I do... I'm really not looking forward to the continuous uh, tragedies that are going to get more brutal as we go. But as like a piece of work that feels complete and genuinely Shakespearean, this is the first one. So instead of like the shadow that was Henry. So yeah, no, in that sense, I, it is quite exciting. On that point of tragedies going too far, there's a quote I have by George Stevens. In Shakespeare and the Theatre, written in 1772 to 1773, he said, There is no fault of which our tragic writers are more generally guilty than thus out-heroding Herod when they paint a tyrant and giving him unnecessary wickedness in order to render him detestable. Hey, if, if that's what he thought of Richard III, oh boy, do we have news for you in the future. Oh, uh, you mean Titus Andronicus? Yeah. Yes. I do say we've gotten to the good stuff, but this is more like an almost accidental alignment of the stars early in a career, and then it takes him a few more plays in order to get back into the conscious ability to make a masterpiece. Oh, really? Like, the next play we're going to do is Comedy of Errors, which is the the fairly good imitation of an ancient Roman play about twins who people constantly mistake for each other. Then I think there's Titus Andronicus. Then there are a few others before he gets... Then, as time goes on, the masterpieces come thicker and thicker and thicker. Oh, wait, so Andronicus is like two more to go? Oh, no, I thought I had a little bit more time. But very well. We have here... One of his masterpieces. We have to put up with three of his competent works before we get to Romeo and Juliet. And also, not just three of his competent works, because next month, Sophie, next month, we are going to be doing the Brothers Machianus, I think. The Brothers Machianus, which is the Plautus play. The play from ancient Plautus on which the Comedy of Errors is based. Are you looking forward to that? I actually am, because I don't really know much about it. So being able to go, okay, so this is what it's based on and just, you know, compare contrast would be quite fun and interesting, I feel. But anyway, I probably should introduce the concept of this podcast. So this is Shakespeare and Pals, where we go through the plays of William Shakespeare in chronological order, as well as some of Shakespeare's pals, which, in, which so far we have done things like The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer and Tambourine Part 1 by uh, Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare's best frenemy. And next time we'll be doing one of Shakespeare's comedic great-granddaddies, Plautus. But this time we are doing Shakespeare's first masterpiece, Richard III. And I think I mentioned last time that throughout this podcast we have been I, particularly, have been trying to give the best benefit of the doubt and the best uh, bigging up to all of the plays of Shakespeare we do, trying to justify anything a modern reader might view as a bit artistically and morally dodgy. However, if Shakespeare died before he made Richard III, 
this podcast would not exist, and I do not think anyone would know who Shakespeare is. So, we are finally getting to the stage of his career that really justifies the attention our culture still gives him. Absolutely, because, uh, <laughs> I mean, God, I can't remember what we've actually written. Um, the only ones that I remember most from this podcast so far is Taming of the Shrew. And it really spoke to you, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, because it was so anime esque, like long, just basically, it was basically like a pilot episode or pilot, um, like storyboarding of an anime series, like a single season mm-hmm. comedy. And it would have been, and it just, someone had given it to me to like basically go, So, what do you think? It's like, it needs more, it needs more time, and it needs more characterization. And also, we need to swap like the protagonists around, that kind of shit. Henry. No, part two and three, like combined, made a quite a good play. Um, I would just fucking ignore part one. Part one was by far the weakest, despite the fact that it was written chronologically the later, so he should have been better in theory. Fuck, what else have we done? Like the fairy yeah. queen is is deeply ingrained in my brain just because it was so much. So dark soulsy. So dark souls. But anyway. Part of this being Shakespeare's first great masterpiece is that the question that I ask at the beginning of every episode will probably have a more thorough answer. Sophie, what is your relationship with Richard III? My relationship with Richard III was uh, very, very scant. Um, We didn't... Yeah, I'm pretty sure we didn't... um, learn about him at school haven't i don't i don't i don't read shakespeare in my free time so no way i could have gotten through there i mean the only relationship i have with richard the third is like retroactive because um while i was you know listening to this through audacity i was like still a little shaky on who was where and who was what so i decided to watch the 1955 movie with something with whoever olivier lawrence um, olivier yeah that one shrek's lord farquad must have been based on that version of richard the third the hair exact is exactly the same the clothes are exactly the same the the inflictions and the hand gestures that the animators of shrek gave Lord Farquaad is exactly that. Is exactly Richard the Third. So that's my so that's my relationship with Richard the Third. This is definitely it- we are getting to the stage in his career where we're not merely going to be getting, you know, quotes from Shakespeare here and there. In lots of modern fiction, in lots of popular modern fiction, you will just encounter Richard III, a character who is essentially Richard III. This is uh, the stage where... So yes, even if you've never seen Richard III, you have seen Richard III, maybe in um, Game of Thrones, maybe in uh, House of Cards. You have seen Richard III. This is the stage we're getting to. And also the Requiem of Roses. Yes, Requiem of the Rose King. Ah, yes, lovely. The Rose Queen, Rose King anime through there, and retroactively Shrek. So uh, Shrek is all en- encompassing. The franchise was never die. Eventually, Shrek Five will show up. We don't know when, but it will happen. You did not hear it first here. 
<laughs> and for my relationship with Richard III, as is the case with most people, you sort of see him represented or sort of see his character type in lots of different uh, modern things like House of Cards, like uh, those other things I mentioned. I did have to read it for a university course. I skimmed it. And I'd say that the format of this podcast has sort of helped with this because we have already read Henry VI, part one, two, and three. And that really helps just sort of solidify all the character relationships because this is a play that sort of does require you to have a bit of a working knowledge of how all of this deeply intertwined genealogies and pasts of characters works out. Did you find that uh, having read those previous plays, you had a better idea of just which characters was on whose side and what's going on? I mean, definitely for the main cast, the main inner circle. But once you started going into Buckingham, into Catsby, and um, the person that eventually beats Richard III and becomes the Tudor. Yes, rather uh, unhelpfully called Richmond. Yeah, it was not very... I I was like, who the fuck are you? Um, Who has a, a supporter called Sir James Blunt. I didn't know he'd been around that long. Uh, no, it's part, just it's rallying like on the troops by singing his awful songs. But um, just listening to it was still wasn't quite enough. Henceforth, the YouTube. Henceforth, the discovery that Lord Farquaad is Richard the Third. You watched many uh, productions of this. I'd say the Laurence Olivier is perhaps the most famous, and also the one you can probably find online for free. But there's also that Ian McKellen one where he is the King of England when in, during World War II and the England is becoming progressively more fascist under him. Ah, uh, no, I did not see that one. Mostly because I would have been distracted by going, oh, no, I know that person. Wait, who's that character again? It makes that, that production makes certain choices, which we could get into in the main discussion. Oh, Olivier definitely made the made a wrong choice, the one wrong choice, but okay, we can get into that later as well. Act one. It's after the War of the Roses, where King Edward, King Edward of York, is now King of England. Richard, now Duke of Gloucester, wants to essentially wipe out his family line in order so he can get to the throne. And that involves getting rid of his brother, Clarence, as well as King Edward. And part of this involves him wanting to woo the Lady Anne. The Lady Anne, who was Prince Edward's wife, not King Edward, Prince Edward, one of the Lancasters, Prince Edward's wife, and Richard woos Lady Anne at Henry VI's funeral. Even though Richard killed both Prince Edward and Henry VI, he successfully woos Lady Anne in a very controversial scene. Some people say it works, other people say it is absolutely absurd. We'll see how we feel about that. And then, 
after Richard has been bad-mouthed by King Edward's wife, who is just in the play called Queen, and other lords, Richard accuses the Queen of trying to turn the king against Clarence, even though Richard was turning the king against Clarence. So we can see this sort of bitchy palace politics, this sort of intersection between mean girls and palace politics coming together here. Richard is talking about people behind their back and also trying to say that other people are the ones actually talking behind other people's backs. But then Margaret the widow of Henry VI, comes in and she curses everyone there. She says, you shall all suffer a terrible fate, and you too, Richard, also finally sends executioners to kill his brother Clarence. And Clarence is, in fact, killed by these executioners, all the time refusing to believe that his own brother would have him killed. It is packed, certainly packed, for, like, because it's so packed, some acts are actually not very noteworthy, at least in terms of the way the um, the way they're constructed. So I think in a much later act, I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of plot, but there's, like, no flowery language. It's just fucking, I guess I suppose it's just straight character where, you know, People are going, oh, hey, hello, man, to go is to tell people, oh, yeah, no, this man's a nice guy. He's he's loved by the locals. Yeah, you know, he talks to priests, that kind of shit. Um, but in terms of, you know, the great speeches, like the one in scene one that is so very famous. Yes, you said that there's very little flowery language, but these great speeches, they do have quite a bit of flowery language, like the famous first line. Now is the winter of our discontent, may a glorious summer by the son of York. Now that is quite flowery. And that where is he, good. this incredibly long speech where he's talking about his brother, grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. Now that is flowery. I, I like it. We, we mentioned the Ian McKellen version and the way he does this is that it begins as him giving a speech and that those opening two lines are like a joke. He's saying, now is the winter of our discontent. May glorious summer by the son of York. So it's a, a set up punchline. You think I'm saying this is bad? Ah, oh, but actually it's good because of him. But then the scene immediately cuts to him in the lavatory pissing and insulting his brother then. Jesus, okay. Yeah, let's talk about the... Uh, so in this play, quite famously, he has a lot, a lot of speeches. And he is one of the characters that we have the most access to. He is always turning towards us and telling us exactly what he's thinking. We are allowed into his confidences. We are allowed into his mind in a way that, you know, essentially the hero of this piece, Richmond, the guy who comes to save the world, essentially, save England... We don't really get his psychology that much. We are put in a position where we are, frankly, given no choice but to empathise more with the villain, more than the hero of this piece. Yeah. And um, I personally like that. I think it would, it's quite a good, um, I suppose, contrast to Henry, because Henry was so good and he was so bad at ruling and probably Shakespeare was like, you know what? I'm going to be bad. I'm going to give a bad king, be super bad. 
and also be bad at ruling and kind of give the whole we need someone that can combine the two of being both good and virtuous and godly while also being smart and clever and you know not necessarily machiavellian but just strategic so you're saying richard the third's that well no no richard the third is the absolute like um the other end of the scale we, yes he, i feel like willie is saying you know we need someone that's in between henry and richie okay and um there's a line i can't remember how far into the plays it's like if my brother is as just and um good and something as i as as i am clever and devilish and you know something else this plan is going to work Yes, on the note of him being this sort of charming, absolutely evil figure, one of the you know commonplaces about this play in the scholarship is that King Richard III, he is meant to be a rendition of the, well, this old character type of the vice, the capital V vice from medieval allegorical plays, where there'd be a, a main character called Everyman or something, and a vice character, an embodiment of some evil sin comes up to try to tempt him away. And this sin, this vice character, would often be very charming, would often be very fun to watch. And so Richard is sort of like this. He is this walking embodiment of evil who is very compelling just to watch and to hear him speak. He was very fun to listen to. And the thing about him, and this is one of the things about how he is in this play, it's that everyone, that the way he, he does persuade people, he is very compelling, but he is always audacious. It's not that he tries to hide how evil he is, or it's not that people don't know that he is evil. Everyone assumes and knows that he is evil, and yet he manages to bring them onto his side. He never takes the easy way into any uh, persuasive move. Uh, and this will become especially clear with Lady Anne. Oh, yeah. Was she eventually, like, convinced? I don't, I don't, I refuse to believe that. It is, I remember there was a piece of um, scholarship. Let me try to find it. Ah, so this is by a guy called George Stevens. So he's talking about this scene, and it's like, was ever a woman in this humour wooed? Was ever a woman in this humour won? A question which criticism must undoubtedly answer in the negative. So the idea is he's saying, was ever a woman in this humour wooed? Was ever a woman in this humour won? No. So he's just basically just dismissing. This is nonsense. This is weird. Absolutely nonsense. Because, like... Even if she, as claimed, had been one, like, she's not very happy about it. Like, do, can you win someone that's actually happy about it? Like, mm, I feel like we're being lied to here. Maybe, like... Just to show, just to give the audience an idea of how audacious it is, he does not merely go to her and start flirting with her. He goes to her at Henry VI's funeral, and also he himself has killed her her husband. She is a widow because of him. And then, and the way he tries to woo her is not by saying, oh, I feel so sorry about what I've done. It's by saying that, oh no, the reason I killed them is because I love you. I was so in love with you that really it's your fault that I killed them. Which is, I mean, giving a whole whole new meaning to vic victim blaming, blaming I will say yes. that. 
and I, I think that you know this is all I think definitely Shakespeare stacking the deck against Richard. He is trying. It's like he, Shakespeare. There are so many ways he could have made this easier to believe. Like maybe Lady Anne didn't really love Prince Edward. Maybe she is a very forgiving person who forgives him. No, he explicitly uh, makes her. Ah, so let me find a line. He explicitly makes her incredibly hateful of Richard. She says, "Foul devil, for God's sake, hence and trouble us not, for thou hast made the happy earth thy hell, filled with the cursing cries and deep exclaims. If thou delight to view thy heinous deeds, behold this pattern of thy butcheries." So she hates him. Shakespeare has made this the most uphill battle possible for Richard, and it's essentially meant. It's sort of like when you're watching some some uh, crime show where the criminal is the uh, is the hero. You need to make uh, you know, the heist or something as impossible as possible in order for the victory to be in any way amazing. But it's a really good scene. Holy shit. And the way and... he manages to seemingly put, get her on his side is that, that act of the gambit of divesting all power. Like he, he's seducing her, he's seducing her, then he says, all right, let me bear my breast and give you my sword. If you really hate me that much, you say you want to kill me, then kill me right now. And this really, I mean, this is a very, I mean, maybe we think this is psychologically unrealistic, which, you know, there's an argument we had about that. But in the moment, these are very compelling and I would say even convincing ways to, you know, disorientate and to get this woman on side. I kind of agree with the psychology of... Yeah, I no, I already told you to kill yourself for me. And he, he's like, no, you did that while you were angry. You didn't really mean that when it, nobody means what they mean, say, when they're angry. Say it with a cold, deep soberness. Say it to my face right now. And, you know, she's like, no, it can't. Um, which, you know, actually is a perfect, I think that's a perfectly, like, reasonable way to go about things. It's like, you know, kill yourself when you're upset and go, I'd rather you didn't just because I wouldn't want that on my conscience kind of thing. There's a difference between there. The, this argument is so good because there are so, there's at least two moments where it just makes you go, <gasps> that pin drop silence that I can just ex imagine in the um, audience, especially when, you know, Lady Anne is going, he is in heaven where thou shalt never come. And Richard is like, let him thank me that hope to send him thither, for he was fitter for that place than earth. So, and thou unfit for any place but hell. Yes, one place else, if you will hear me name it. Some dungeon? Your bedchamber. And it's like, oh, you didn't. Richard, you didn't. It's, it's one of those things where it is, as I have said, the audacity. It is the impossibility that makes it in some ways convincing. Yeah. And is, even Lady Anne is like, no, you didn't. I'll rest betide the chamber where thou liest. And um, where does she spit at him? He that bereft thee, lady, of thy husband, did it to help thee to a better husband. Say, what? Oh, you know, you, you, yeah, I mean, he was a good enough husband, but now you can get a better husband. Is better doth not breathe upon the earth? He lives that loves thee better than he could. Name him Plantagenet. Why, that was he. The self-same name, but one of better nature. And where is he? Here. <laughs> sir! Sir! 
why dost thou spit at me? Would it mere mortal poison for thy sake? And it's like, no, yeah, and and you absolutely agree. Wow. And the scene. Yes, and I'd say that in the previous part, I was saying that this is still Shakespeare where his masterpieces are sort of a an accident of you of being a youthful prodigy. Uh, because he does seem to do this scene again in the very same play in Act Four, where he tries to get uh, King Edward's widow to hand over her niece or her uh, or her daughter, I forget which, but he's trying to get her to hand over Lady Elizabeth. And essentially, it's the same thing happening. He's trying to get a woman who hates him to give him something sexual which he wants. And in that scene, it in no way works as well as this one. It is in no way as convincing. It just seems to come out of nowhere. The hate is not convincingly turned into agreement in that scene. This part works in a way that elsewhere in the play, Shakespeare fails to make it work. At least for the other lady, she was an old lady. So maybe he just wore her down. But eh, we'll get to it when we get to it. I have a piece from William Richardson who's talking about this scene. And, you know, he, he does know that lots of people have said this scene is very uh, unrealistic. But he says here, For on many occasions, those passages, passages which on a cursory view may be reckoned blemishes on a closer examination will appear very different. In his imitations of nature, he is so very bold and so different from other poets that what is daring is often in a moment of slight attention deemed improbable, and what is extraordinary is too rashly pronounced absurd. So he's saying that actually this what this is actually quite psychologically realistic, but because it is so daring in its psychological realisticness, it it seems not to ring true. So he's talking about Lady Anne. So she is represented of a mind altogether frivolous, the prey of vanity, her prevailing, overruling passion, susceptible, however, of every feeling and emotion, and while they last, sincere in their expression, but hardly capable of distinguishing the propriety of one more than another. So essentially the idea is that in that moment, her vanity was acted upon, her emotions, you know, in one moment she is absolutely in the height of emotion of hating him, but her emotions are, you know, it's one, it's, uh, I suppose in some way this is a uh, 18th century guy saying, oh, women are always changing the, but it, I'd say that this is perhaps a somewhat good justification of the scene, that she is the type of person whose emotions can shift and uh, she can hold two utterly opposed ideas because of her emotions seemingly side by side. And given that very soon after this in the play, she reveals that she really hates her marriage to Richard III. She hates the fact that she's married to him. I'd say that that perhaps adds a level of realisticness or plausibility to the claim that she was just caught up in a bit of emotion um, that she is too easily prey to. Yeah, no, because it, it would be far more unrealistic if she was like, oh, no, I'm so very happily married. Richard is so good to me. I find him so attractive. Like, it's, it's just like, oh, God, no, you're, this is a puppet. This is a bad plastic cutout of a human being, despite the fact that plastic hadn't been invented yet. Because the thing is, like, she is not one yet at least in this scene it is entirely possible that she that richard iii also just keeps wearing her down or maybe 
I don't know what Lady Anne's, well, her familial situation is. So maybe they really need her to remarry royalty, a Plantagenet, and he is one. So shrug emoji? Lady Anne gets no say in it? We don't know. Move on to another topic. Uh, this is certainly, you know, nowadays we're putting timers on these discussions, uh, but this is certainly a play with a lot of food for thought in it and a lot of things to talk about, especially this first scene. I'd say quite importantly, uh, there are at least two things I want to get to. One of them, essentially Margaret coming to curse them all. So Margaret, the warrior queen from Henry VI Part Three, the French woman who married Henry VI, and now she is uh, lower down in the world, she is just a woman skulking about the palace, and she comes out to see Richard, uh, Duke of Gloucester, and all, and the now current queen, uh, wife of King Edward, and she comes to curse them all, like she says. I so, love her. Yes. And it is a absolute fucking travesty that the 1955 uh, movie just did not let her exist at all in that movie. I mean, I get it because they needed to fit Richard III, a monstrosity of a play, into two and a half hours. It's one of those um, things where the most compelling and striking parts of a play are the ones that are not necessary to the plot and so can be removed to the cost of the play. Yes. God damn you. But you know, oh. it also, she, she does curse them. She curses them all. And, and essentially her curses come through. And in a weird way, she does make Richard the instrument of her revenge. That it's almost like she is cursing them and Richard does make her revenge come true. She even at the end says, she curses Richard by saying, on thee, the troubler of the poor world's peace, the worm of conscience, still benore thy soul. Thy friends suspect for traitors while thou livest, and take a deep traitors for thy dearest friends. No sleep close up that deadly eye of thine, unless it be will some tormenting dream affrights thee with a hell of ugly devils. Which is what happens. At the end, he is sort of tormented by the beginnings of a conscience. Yeah. I will say, though, Lady Anne kind of um, curses herself as well by accident um, in that previous scene, because uh, at the very start, if ever he have wife referring to the person that killed her husband, let her he made a miserable by the death of him. Yes, it seems that there's a lot of irony, perhaps providence going on in this play. Yeah, but ah, oh, Margaret, so good, so good. And the way that, and you know, Richard does this clever thing where essentially he, he managed, you know, so in this scene, it begins with, you know, the, 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 the current queen and all these other lords saying, oh, you awful person, Richard, you awful person, Richard. And then when Margaret comes in, Richard essentially turns their hatred onto Margaret uh, so that he can play the good guy now. So he does this thing where everyone knows that Richard is an arsehole. Everyone knows he's a bad guy, but he knows how to organize the situation such that he can be not the center of hatred. I mean, that is kind of easy to do, considering uh, Margaret caused them a, a royal amount of pain in the previous play. But... Yes, I wonder, one of those things where you wonder how much Shakespeare is rewriting the previous plays, like, you know, or how much what happened in the previous plays is what we can assume did happen, because 
you know, the way Margaret talks about things and the way some characters talk about things, they seem to believe the past was far better than it was. Like, I think uh, Richard... Richard, like, I, there's a part where Richard said, if my brother Edward is as kind and loving as I am evil and bad, then I am very evil and bad. But of course, in the previous play, King Edward was not kind and loving. He was a very hedonistic kind of guy. Yeah. And Margaret Would... seems to act as if she loved her husband. I mean, uh, does does this... Mm... I don't think Margaret is acting like she loved her husband. I think she's more of a everything has been taken away from yeah. me kind of situation. Also, Lady Anne just did, did not fucking exist in the previous plays. Um, and on so the note she... of Margaret, she does later on say when, when the other women are saying, teach us how to curse. And Margaret says, pretend that your past is better than your current life or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's true. But yeah, oh, um, and Queen Margaret and, and Queen Elizabeth have like an interesting dynamic here, which I really enjoy. Um, poor painted queen, vain flourish of my fortune. Why stirrest thou sugar on that bottled spider whose deadly web ensnareth thee about? Fool, fool, thou wettest a knife to kill thyself. The time will come when thou shalt wish for me to help thee curse that poisonous bunchbacked toad. Poisonous bunchbacked toad is so chef's kiss. Um, and after she leaves, um, Richard III is like, I cannot blame her. By God's holy mother, she hath had too much wrong, and I repent my part thereof that I have done to her. Queen Elizabeth I never did her any, to my knowledge. It's like, bitch, but you have all the vantage of her wrong. I was too hot to do somebody good. That is too cold in thinking of it now. Marry as for Clarence, he is well repaid. He is franked up to fatting for his pains. God pardon them that are the cause of it. You know, it's like, you didn't do her wrong, but you are, um, what's the word? gaining from yes. her wrongs so like yeah you have some blame in this just, just yes. a little bit and i think this sort of does come into like when people talk about the tudor myth the idea of the the kind of history paradigm the chase was working under which is that uh richard the third had to be painted as a most evil person in order to justify the coming tudor dynasty uh, however part of the tudor myth is also that it wasn't just that richard the third was an evil king it was that his being an evil king was sort of a punishment for the War of the Roses. He was a punishment because England was a very shit place in general. So it's not just that he is one evil element entering this place, that everyone around him, the court, the, you know, the, the York family, even the Lancaster family, all the people in this country, in the ruling powers, are sort of bad people. Uh, he is only able to exist and he is only able to turn people against each other. He is only able to operate because he lives in such a depraved time period, which we need the Tudor dynasty to come along and a cure. Yeah. And there's one last point I want, you know, one last point I want to get to, which is the execution of Clarence. Uh, so Clarence is uh, Richard's brother. Uh, King Edward's brother. And Richard has managed to turn subtly turn King Edward against Clarence by essentially uh, faking up a, uh, a bad omen that a person whose name begins with a person whose name begins with G 
will kill you. Now, that is also audacious of Richard because G could stand for George, which is Clarence's name, or it could stand for Gloucester, which is the place that Richard is a duke of. So this is another audacious thing Richard is doing. But uh, King Edward essentially gets uh, Clarence locked up and he even sends along a order of execution. He goes on to send along a reprieve of execution, but Richard is very quick to send the executioners along to do this very quickly before the reprieve can come along. And one thing that I like about this is that you know, throughout this scene, Clarence absolutely refuses to believe that uh, Richard is trying to kill him. He, refu- like, he has a, a dream where he imagines Richard uh, pushing him into the water so he can drown. But he says, Methought that Gloucester stumbled, and in stumbling struck me, and sought to stay him overboard. So he's in his mind where he sees Richard pushing him into the water, he says, oh, he was stumbling, he just tripped. He, he wasn't really doing it. And even when the executioners tell him that it was Richard who sent them, who was sent to kill him, that it was Richard who sent uh, them to kill him, he still refuses to believe it. it it's, one of those, yeah, it's one of those things where he just cannot believe that Richard is a bad person. Which is very funny. And also, ah, and which semi bigs what's this is um okay this is a weird um character theory i have was richard half joking like for most of it until he you know how you can like incompetence your way to a promotion did he edgelord his way up to kinghood yes it's like that that sketch which is that you should take care of him and then the 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 people just don't know whether or not that he means literally take care of them or not take care or kill them essentially yeah pretty much part of me's like going it's like oh these audacious plots did he start them because he was bored you know he was genuinely just not very good at peace so he wanted to stir some shit and then it just kept working and it just kept going and he was like oh And uh, because he just kept taking it to farther and farther and farther, by the time the war happens and the ghosts show up, he was like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I just kept going. I was a cra- car crash. And I, as soon as I started crashing, I just had to keep going. He is too far steeped in blood and to return were as difficult as to go o'er, in the words of Macbeth. On yes. that point, there is, like... In this scene with the executioners, we do get another one of Shakespeare's rather striking skills, which is to differentiate two incredibly similar characters. So we have these two executioners, and one of them is having the pains of conscience, and the other one is saying, oh, get on with it. So these two characters, so one, two executioners, both of them are pretty much perform the same function in the narrative, but one of them seems to have a conscience, one of them doesn't have a conscience. Uh, and also someone says that uh, I, in some of the, I can't find it exactly, but some of the uh, the old um, writings about this play that I have in Shakespeare, The Critical Heritage, they're talking about how Shakespeare had the talent to do two ambitious kings in his career, two evil ambitious kings in his career, Macbeth and Richard III, and they are entirely different from each other. 
Macbeth is a sort of tottering person who needs to be tempted forward by the witches, whereas Richard III is a guy who just says, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to start. He doesn't need to be tempted. He just starts and keeps going. So he manages to differentiate characters which are on paper incredibly similar. He manages to make them entirely distinct from each other. I do adore him for that. Richard's like, yeah, let's just keep going. But yeah, um... Also, in this feels like the first play where Richard, sorry, not Richard, um, William Shakespeare employs an overarching, 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 not sure which accent pronunciation I should be using, thematic outline, I guess. So you have characters who are, you know, saying, you know, conscience makes you a coward. The murderer says that, um, Richard says that, I'm pretty sure, like, at least one other character says that. Maybe Margaret or the the mother. Um, it's like that thing in um, Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. In an evil society, goodness becomes the temptation which must be quashed. <laughs> Act two. To summarize, so King Edward did send a countermand against Clarence's execution. Unfortunately, Richard's executioners were a bit too quick for that. And Clarence is now dead, and the king shortly afterwards seems to die of grief. And now... The citizens of London, the citizens of England, are very worried about the coming reign of the young... Is this... Is is the prince also called... Is the new king also called Prince Edward? I believe so, yes. Yes, okay. So, we have uh, King Edward's dead uh, for Prince Edward, who is not the Prince Edward that Richard killed in the previous play. Uh, this is another Prince Edward. Shakespeare... Later on in this play, will really make a big uh, hay and a big uh, back and forth between the queens about these similar names. Them saying, oh, I had an Edward, you had an Edward, and by one Richard, they were both killed. I've just been calling them, like, um, Big Prince and Little Prince in my head, just to make them easier to differentiate, because I don't, I don't care. I don't care about their names. They are, yes, it's one of those awful things, like in most, uh, you know, guides to how to do creative writing, always make sure that all of your characters have different names and ideally have a different initial letter to all of their names. When you are dealing with history, uh, that is not really your choice. But anyway, the citizens, the, we get, we sort of move away from palace politics and we begin to see like this we begin to see what the actual people on the street are worried about we have citizens saying oh um we sort of have this thing where we have the optimistic person who's saying oh well we've experienced bad things before we can work through this that sort of thing you heard at the beginning of covid or the beginning of donald trump's presidency oh we've been through bad things before we can survive this as like, no no you're really going to get a real battering from this uh then we have a status quoite, I think, saying, oh, no, things will be basically the same. And then there's a pessimist who's saying, oh, no, things are going to turn shit. Things will turn yeah. shit right now. The third citizen, when clouds appear, wise men put on their cloaks. When great leaves fall, the winter is at hand. When the sun sets, who doth not look for night? 
Untimely storms make men expect a death. Or maybe well, but if God saw it so, tis more than we deserve, or I expect. Very good accent work. I, I, should, I should be cancelled for it. <laughs> oh. And just to finish my summary, just one more detail is that um, the Cardinal, the Queen, and the Duchess of York, so the Duchess of York is Richard's mother, and uh, she really hates Richard. She hates her son. You know that phrase, a face only a mother could love? Well, she does not love Richard. Uh, she, uh, she, abs- she thinks that, oh, no, this hell happened. No, it is- At some point she says uh, something about, oh, my- how could my womb have created this awful thing? But, you know, so the Cardinal, the Queen, and Duchess of York are discussing how various lords have been in prison, seemingly on Richard's say-so. So we already see the beginning of Richard abusing um, the forms and the image of justice in order to get rid of his enemies. So the tyranny is already beginning. I'll admit yeah. that my notes, I don't have many notes on this particular act. So, if you, so you were saying something, so... I'll give it over to you. What do you want to talk about? Well, Act 2, Scene 1, my note says, King tries to make everybody play nice, only to have the party pooped by Richie with George's death. Surprisingly boring scene. Um, well, was, there's sort of the irony of, you know, King Edward. You know, throughout these plays, uh, the you know, the, the first, you know, it's, this story all begins with um, various characters saying, no, we should have peace, we should have peace. Even though... These kings' reigns, or their fathers' reigns, or their fathers' fathers' reigns, were born in war, where they really have no leg to stand on because the fact they are in power is entirely because someone did a civil war in their country. Uh, yeah, and um, it okay. It's it's less hypocrite, hypocrite, hip, uh, It's less hypocrisy. It feels like that's um fueling this man into doing a peace with his uh friends and family it feels more like a hey i don't want what happened to my predecessor whomst me and my family's murdered to happen to this family so it's like you know you two embrace each other and mean it okay good awesome wife give him a kiss give him a hug and and mean it please and everyone's going, mm, yeah, fine, we'll do it. Until uh, Richie just breaks that um, pantomime. That sort and of King Lear thing, which is that you'll get along because I say so. You'll get along because I say so, and I say so very forcefully. <sighs> so it was, yeah, that. And aside from, you know, the king's grief-stricken monologue going... Why didn't you stop me? Uh, it was a pretty fucking boring scene because everyone's going, do I look as white as everyone else? Do I look as shocked? Which um, I feel like that was mostly for the audience's sake to go, hey, yeah, no, we, we're all looking bad. We're all looking pretty shocked and awful. That kind of shit. Scene two was surprisingly trash. In that, you know, the children, oh, for our father, for our dear Lord Clarence. Judges of alas, for both, both mine, Edward and Clarence. Queen Elizabeth, what stay had I but Edward, and he's gone? What stay had we but Clarence, and he's gone? What stays had I but they, and they are gone? Was never widow had so dear a loss. 
were never orphans had so dear a loss. And I'm like, oh, Christ, shut the fuck up. He's like, oh, yes, we're such cherubs and we're so sad that our uncle and now our dad is dead. Wah! And I'm like, shut the fuck up, please. For the love it's one of, of those things where the, these children are being played by children. Some of the women are being played by children. Uh, but these children are being played by children. And, you know, surely Shakespeare must have seen what children are really like. <laughs> I mean, he was married. How many kids did he have? Like three? Well, I know, like, Hamnet died. But that was, yeah. like, a lot later. So he, had... he had at least one kid by now. He had a he had a daughter, I think. Let me check out my notes. Um, but he did have a daughter. Um, I think his daughter was hauled up because people thought she might have been a Catholic or something like that. Uh, she had a he had a daughter called Susanna Shakespeare. Uh, so after the gunpowder plot, there was an anti-Catholic crackdown. You know, just like after nine eleven, suddenly the FBI were going into all the mosques. There was an anti-Catholic crackdown after the um, the uh, Catholic extremist gunpowder plot. And so Susanna Shakespeare was dragged in for questioning after that point. Maybe this means Shakespeare my household might have been a bit Catholic, or maybe it was just the over-paranoia of the Jacobean government. I mean, probably the paranoia of the Jacobean, Jacobin, fuck, uh, government. The JG... So we have here, so his children were Susanna, Hamnet, and Judith Quinney. Shakespeare's one of those people where all of his children have rather thorough Wikipedia pages. Huh. Even Hamnet, despite the fact that he died so quickly. I suppose Hamnet would have that because, you know, Hamlet as well. So yes... I, I, you know, the, these aren't long Wikipedia pages, but they do have multiple sections all filled out. Jesus. You can tell that these, this Act 2 doesn't particularly have much to talk about in it. Yeah, <laughs> scene four, like in scene four, Elizabeth's brothers are sent to Pomfret, apparently known for its brutality. I mean, I see the downfall of our house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jet upon the innocent and awless throne. Welcome destruction, death and massacre. I see, as in a map, the end of all. It's like a cursing and quiet wrangling days. How many of you have mine? My husband lost his life to get the throne. Oh, sorry, get the crown. And often up and down my sons were tossed for me to joy and weep their gain and loss. And being secret and domestic broils clean overblown themselves the conquerors. Make war upon themselves, blood against blood, self against self. Oh, preposterous and frantic outrage in thy damned spleen. Oh, let me die to look on death no more. Yeah, like... This could have been better written, I feel like. Or maybe it's just entirely a, a delivery situation, but I get Elizabeth being sort of like a mewling little um, queen because she didn't want this, at least. I, that's how I interpreted her in the previous play when Edward was like, mm, yeah, Lady Grey, I do want you in my bedchamber. So Elizabeth going, I don't, <laughs> I never wanted this and I still don't want this. Uh, makes perfect sense to me, but Duchess of York, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Shall we go on to Act 3?
Act three. To summarize, so Prince Edward is yet to be officially king. Uh, and in fact, he will die before he is coronated. Richard, and already Richard and Buckingham are plotting to put a man called Hastings on the throne, even though Hastings does not wish to ally with Richard. Uh, but Hastings refuses to take uh, Lord Stanley's warnings about Richard, and as a result, Hastings, when Richard learns that Hastings will not play along with their plan to put him on the throne, Richard essentially gets him imprisoned. So the way Richard does this is he comes in with these false witchcraft claims. He says, look at my arm, look at my arm, it's all shriveled up. And he says, you, you and you, you all did this to me. You're going to prison. And this is what gets them killed. So we can see that he is, which is, you know, obviously sort of a Stalin-esque lie because his hand has always been withered up. And Richard begins a propaganda offensive to slander Hastings and to slander King Edward, uh, his brother, and to also slander his own father, Richard Plantagenus. So by saying that at some point or another, they had illegitimate children. So he slanders King Edward to say that actually King Edward's Prince Edward is not legitimate, or to say that Richard Plantagenet, uh, he had sex with some, uh, or someone else had sex with his mother, um, and so that actually uh, uh, King Edward was not legitimate, and therefore, being the only brother left alive, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, will thereby by default become king. Uh, it turns... Uh, no one, however, seems to be buying the propaganda, and so... King and so Richard tries to do a kiss the baby moment where he he gets two religious people to stand around him as he calls upon uh, uh, as he calls upon Buckingham to bring the mayor of London around and lots of citizens around so that he can make a a appearance of being too holy for the crown and to ceremonially deny the crown even as they are forcing the crown upon him and eventually he does quote unquote reluctantly take the crown. Did I leave anything out? Mm, no. <clears throat> Was this uh, act more interesting? Surprisingly no, because acts, because for well, scene three was just, you know, the Elizabeth's uh, relatives going, oh no, we're gonna die, and it's Margaret's fault, and that's end scene. Scene one was interesting, I guess, in that, like, it was another moment where it made you go, oh, no, the audacity, except the audacity wasn't happening from uh, Richard III, it was happening to Richard, when, so I basically wrote it as his brother and mother has claimed sanctuary, Buckingham convinces the cardinal to yank the boy out, since why would a child need sanctuary anyway? The child is brought and the little boy teases the shit out of Richie, extra sealing their fate. And I mean, that part about getting removed from the sanctuary, it, it is already the forms of law eroding. It's like, you know, you, know, you shouldn't be able to take them from this place. This is a place where you shouldn't go. And they're already saying, oh, no, let's do some legal loopholes to get them out of there. Is it really even a legal loophole? It's more if just sort you... of them arguing that, well, they're not priests, and so therefore they can't really pretend to be um, protected there. 
Yeah, and um, also it's like, oh, it's silly. It's against common sense that you that a child would need sanctuary. What do they? Come on. It's, it's... And this is one of those things where uh, later on, like all these people are Buckingham Cates, but they're willing to go along with Richard. They're willing to go along with his, let's kill this person and put him on the throne. Let's kill this guy. Let's kill all these people. It's when he starts saying, let's just kill children. They're, oh, you're this, you're this evil. Oh, I wasn't willing to go this far with you. Yeah, Gloucester, it is too heavy for your grace to wear. Um, Richard Plantagenet, Duke of Gloucester, I'm confused. Is there like, how how many Richards are there here? Uh, Richard Plantagenet was the dead father of them. Um, I'm not sure there are any other Richards. Okay, then open source is lying to me. Maybe his, maybe... Oh, fuck, new... Little Prince. Yes. Little Prince that uh, teases Richard is also a Richard. Yes. Just called the Duke of York now. Yeah, that's so annoying. But yeah, so that happens. So yeah, Little Prince is like, oh, yeah, no, you can give me your dagger. And it's like, no, okay, you can have my dagger. It's like, well, can I have your sword? It's like, no, that, that'll be too heavy for you. Well, then would I be too heavy for you? Let me go on your shoulders. And then it's like, oh, no, you shouldn't have said that, child. Because it it's not uh, Richie that responds. It's Duke of Buckingham with, what a sharp provided wit he reasons to mitigate the scorn he gives his uncle. He prettily and aptly taunts himself. So cunning and so young is wonderful. As it's like, yeah, no, yeah, um, don't do that, child. Like, you're so clever, but shut the fuck up. Or else he might get locked off now. Yes, lots of people assuming that Richard would not descend that low. New. And, you know, quite famously, this is one of those things where most historians will say, actually, Richard probably wasn't so evil that he'd kill children. The children died for other reasons. Uh, but this is one of the things that Shakespeare and lots of the history books, the mainstream history books from Shakespeare's time, they all said, yeah, he probably did kill them. <laughs> yes, and... When it comes to, like, a lot of the early criticism is saying that, oh, no, Richard III, is, this, is, this, this character is too evil. This character is too outrageous. His sins are too much for the stage. To which other people said, well, when you look at the history books he had available to him, he was just being historically accurate. Maybe he wasn't being actually historically accurate, but based on the history books he could read, he was being historically accurate. Um, you could also potentially argue that it was just another form of propaganda, especially to make the Tudors look good. And since that was, you know, the mainstream zeitgeist anyway, and no one's when it going comes to... to yes, making you know that's one of the the one of the main ways people have read this play, which is in line with the Tudor myth that this is just one more example of Shakespeare, you know, just buying into this view of history, which ultimately exists to glorify the Tudor dynasty. Throughout history, people have tried to find various ways to complicate this because we don't like to think of our great hero being a bootlicker. Uh, so, uh, some uh, I had a like some people say that uh, he complicates this by making Richard such a charming figure. Uh, my Shakespeare professor, uh, he brought in. He's one of those people from that era of Shakespeare scholarship where they want to make Shakespeare a radical. That oh, actually all of his plays are saying something deeply subversive of power. Uh, which, le uh, as years go on, I believe less and less. Uh -huh. yeah. but, but his view was that the character of Stanley, did you notice the character of Lord Stanley, Sophie? 
Oh yeah, no. Um, he is a he is a character who's he's like one of those 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 uh, collaborators. He's what we call a collaborator. Someone who's saying, "Oh well, I don't agree with the Nazis, but you know, my family still lives here, and you know, if you want to live in this country, you sort of have to go along with them." He's that kind of person. The type of person who say, "I don't believe in this, but of course, I'll I'll sort of go along with it." Oh yes, I'm a passive resistor, but I'll go along with it. At the end of this play, I mean, he is the father-in-law of Richmond, so already that's connected. So connecting to the Tudor dynasty, and also at the very end, he Stanley is the one who hands Richmond the crown. So this sort of collab, so it's like a Nazi collaborator is handing the allied victor the uh, the crown. So this is so my Shakespeare professor was saying this undermines the 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 victory at the end because the Tudor dynasty is given its symbol of power by this moral vacuum. This guy who will go along with anyone, so long as they are in power. I don't believe that because, uh, I mean, in part because in the introduction to my Oxford edition, it turns out that Lord, Sta- that Lord Stanley is the ancestor of Lord Strange, of Lord Strange's men, the theatre company that Shakespeare was working for. And the way the, this book, the, the introduction puts it, is that it, it's like uh, Shakespeare was writing this part in order to make your Nazi collaborating grandfather seem as good as the historical record would make it. So Shakespeare is really trying to minimise the level of collaboration that Lord Stanley is having and also making him the person who gives Richmond the crown as a way to glorify, essentially, Shakespeare is trying to glorify his boss's grandfather here. Yeah, and also, like, even if he was a semi-enthusiastic collaborator, it's, at least later, he has his son, you know, made hostage. It's like, if he betrays me, kill him. Remind him yeah. that if he betrays me, his son is dead. And, um... Yes, at or... the end, he is, he even says, uh, Richmond, I can't actually fight for you, but I will pull my, my, I'll pull my punches. Yeah, and, um, at least in the, in the movie, he, he doesn't even pull the punches, he's after, they're in the thick of things, with quotation marks implied, the soldiers go, yeah, no, we're friends. This ain't a civil war. We're done with this shit. And just like embraces each other. And Richard is like, no, no, kill that man's son. And everyone else is like, dude, we can't do it now. He's not even here. Like, it, it's going to have to wait. Yes, that is. And- yes. Uh, and. And also, Stan, he does try to warn Hastings, like he's saying, in my dream there was a boar who killed you. Wink, wink, why don't you run? To which Hastings does not run. And it is Hastings, you know, earlier in the play we noted how, like, Richard says, you know, uh, so, like, uh, the Queen says, I did her no wrong, and Richard says, ah, but you got the advantage of the wrong. And essentially, Hastings says the same thing, except about himself. Like, you know, people, you know, he knows that uh, Richard wants to put him on the throne or to get him to get involved in conspiracy. And he says, oh, no, I don't want to do this. Um, so let me find the line. So he says, um, ah, so Catesby says, okay, so Hastings says, I'll have this crown of mine cut from my shoulders ere I will see the crown so foul misplaced. But canst thou guess that he doth aim at it? And Catesby says, I on my life, my lord, and hopes to find you forward upon his party for the game thereof. And thereupon he sends you this good news, that this same very day your enemies, the kindred of the queen, must die at Pomfret. 
And Hastings says, Indeed, I am no mourner for that news, uh, because they have been still mine enemies. But that I'll give my voice on Richard's side to bar my master's heirs in true descent, God knows I will not do it to the death. So he's saying, look, I like some of the evil things he's doing, killing these people who I don't like, but I'm not going to work with him. Um, and this is, I mean, this is very much the Elizabethan version of the woman who voted for the Panthers eating people's face-off parties, commenting, I didn't know they'd eat my face off. So he never, he says, oh yes, I'm glad he's killing these people. He won't kill me. I don't need to run. Even though Stanley warns him, you probably should run at the moment. He's not going to like it that you don't agree with him. Yeah. I mean, that was very, what's the word, naive of Hastings. Part of me is like, did he think he was joking? That Did he think, um, oh, are we Hastings? Like, uh, this is a serious story. And Catsby's like, yes. And Hastings like, nah, 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 I don't think so. That's fine. Even if it is, even if it wasn't, like, it's not going to happen. And I'm not going to do anything about it because, you know, I do like my, my little nephew boys doing kingly stuff. It's you're joking you're done yeah so Hastings just seems like a very optimistic a little bumbling well not necessarily bumbling but just generally well-loved normie man who doesn't understand the concept of you know subtlety and like reading between the lines and yeah like he says one of his final lines is saying oh momentary state of worldly men Uh, who builds his hope and air of your fair looks lives like a drunken sailor on a mast, ready with every nod to tumble down into the fatal bowels of the deep. So basically he's saying that, you know, in order to to live in this world, you need to have a level of suspicion. Otherwise, every nod, every... If you just blink, even for a second, uh, you know, someone's going to get you. He is not the type of person who can uh, keep attentive to the political machinations around him. Yeah. He could be a person that couldn't that maybe was just bad at at scheming or was just a little too straight to be schemer. But eh, Hastings, you lived, you died. Wasn't you? And ended up not being very interesting. Scene four. What happened in scene? Oh yeah. So that's that's scene four. Yes. And what do we think of uh, the part where he try where Richard tries the propaganda offensive? which doesn't seem to work at all. There's even a bit of a laugh line here where, you know, Buckingham is saying, so I went down into the, to the court and I began telling them uh, about how great you were, such that, um, so he says, uh, with all I did infer your liniments, being the right idea of your father, both in your form and nobleness of mind, laid open all your victories in Scotland, your discipline in war, wisdom in peace, your bounty, virtue, fair humility, indeed left nothing fitting for the purpose, untouched or slightly handled in discourse. And when mine oratory grew to an end, I bid that they did love their country good, cry, God save Richard, England's royal king. And Richard says, ah, and did they so? And Buckingham replies, "Uh, no, so God help me. So it is that that is that is a line that will obviously get some laughs in performance that no one, no one buys what Buckingham says. And I think, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, Richard's audacity, he says things that obviously aren't true, but he can get people to go along with him. It's almost like he is the one who needs to be in the room for this charisma to work. Buckingham can't do it for him. Richard has to be the one who boasts himself up and who says these audacious things, because if it's not him, no one will believe it. Yeah. Um, 
I the I also noted about this scene, especially when he, you know, um collects people and collects two clergymen next to him, pretend holds a Bible, pretends to be in like deeply in prayer, that kind of shit. Um, and then he is like, No, 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 don't don't make me take the crown. Um, I was like, oh yeah, this is Caesar. This is Julius Caesar before he gets stabbed. And when it Easily. comes to this, like um the way that, you know, eventually the citizens say, oh no, take it. it. How this scene is done will very much color our interpretation of it because we know that at least one citizen says it because it says, do good Lord, let's all the land do rue it. We know that at the very least one citizen is on Richard's side. Uh, but uh, how many citizens are on his side will depend, will really change how we view this scene and how we will view uh, the country's reaction to Richard. Yeah. Like, is the entire room suddenly won over by this obvious propaganda, kiss the baby politician moment? Are they all saying, oh, this is a good man, such a good man. Please take the crown, sir. I mean, I think the chemistry between the two, Richard and Buckingham is what sells them. I feel like if maybe Buckingham had sort of primed them, they were like, um, is he though? Kind of shifty because is he just talking nice about his boss to us? So like he doesn't get fired or did they actually think that Richard is a bad king or regent in this case? And then, but seeing Buckingham and Richard sort of going back and forth because these monologues are quite long and um fucking as i so mighty and so many my defects as i had rather hide me from my greatness being a bark to brook no mighty sea than in my greatness covet to be hid and in the vapor of my glory smothered but god be thanked there's no need of me and much i need to help you if need were the royal tree hath left us royal fruit, which, mellowed by the stealing hours of time, will well become the seat of majesty, and make no doubt us happy by his reign. On him I lay what you would lay on me, the right and fortune of his happy stars, which God defend that I should wring from him. So, my lord, this argues conscience in your grace, but the respects thereof are nice and trivial, all circumstance well considered. You say that Edward is your brother's son, so say we too, but not by Edward's wife. For first he was contracted Lady Lucy. Your mother lives a witness to that vow, and afterward by substitute betrothed to bonus to the King of France. Blah, 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 blah. Um, kind of also, at the by doing the whole Lady Lucy and Bona and eventually getting with gray not only are they undercutting um the dead dad they're also going yeah but because he the king is drawing your blood too you can put him in the right path and therefore for the future king be king now so this interplay is i think what convinces the citizens together they are whole <laughs> Act four. To summarize, the Duchess of York, the Queen Mother, and Lady Anne learn that the boys, the Prince Edward and the young Duke of York, are in the tower, and Richard is now king. And Richard starts, in order to make his success secure, 
Richard starts asking his allies to start kill the children, which turns out to be a bit much even for his allies. And this is where he starts alienating his friends and Buckingham turns against him. However, Richard does find someone to kill the, the princes. With the princes dead, Richard wants to make sure there are no further heirs who could replace him. So he tries to set up a marriage with Clarence's daughter after ordering his own Lady Anne wife killed. Then the women, the uh, Queen, the King Edward's wife, uh, the Duchess of York, Lady Anne, I think? No, someone else. And Margaret, these three women, are all lamenting their suffering. <clears throat> and then Richard comes along to King Edward's wife, the Queen Elizabeth, and starts begging for Lady Elizabeth's hand from her, which somehow he succeeds in getting from this woman who hates him. The act ends with his enemies marshalling against him, but they seem to have suffered an initial failure. And it also ends with Stanley regretful that he cannot side with Richmond because Richard has imprisoned his son. And already, so, you know, Lady Anne's wooing was quite a big part of this uh, play. And I think it's only now that she is showing up again. Am I right? Yeah, no, she just disappears forever and then she finally shows up mostly to say hey friends like let's go to the tower to finally like see our children um, and also to show that she really does regret marrying him yeah like it's one of those things where we see uh, um that when she hears that she will be queen uh, she is oh god she basically let me find the line so um so, I you know, don't... the Stanley says, Come, madame, you must go with me to Westminster, there to be crowned Richard's royal queen. And uh, Anne says, Despiteful tidings, oh, unpleasing news. So the basic idea is that, oh, it's like someone has said, You're the queen now. And she's, Oh, that must mean Richard's done something terrible. Yeah. And what? I feel bad for Dorset. Like, be of good cheer, mother. How fares your grace? It's like, Oh, Dorset, speak not to me. Get thee hence. Death and destruction dog thee at the heels. Thy mother's name is ominous to children. If thou wilt outstrip death, go cross the seas and live with Richmond from the reach of hell. Go hitty, hitty from the slaughterhouse, lest thou increase the number of the dead and make me die the thrall of Margaret's curse. No mother, wife, nor England's counted queen. It's like, Dorset just wanted to make sure that you were okay, Elizabeth. Come your tits. And Stanley, like he usually does, say, well, this is quite wise. Uh, Dorset, you probably should leave. Leave right now. It's safe. That will be safe. I mean, it does say something that Stanley, even though he's saying to everyone, you know, run away, go now, is that he is sticking around. Maybe this says something good or something bad about him. I mean, uh, I guess, like, he, he can't leave, I guess. Like, his son hasn't been um, held hostage yet, so maybe something else is keeping him here. Or he's very sure that Richard will come for him if he does leave, so he's got to be careful. But yeah, Lady Anne and I in all unwillingness will go. I would to God that the inclusive verge of golden metal that must round my brow were red-hot steel to sear me to the brain. Anointed, let me be with deadly venom and die ere men can say, God save the Queen. And, and yes, yeah, so as, as we were saying before, this uh, 
this scene of her turning against Richard does sort of make the wooing more realistic because that was sort of a momentary madness on her part or a momentary letting herself be swayed by, as she says, honeyed words. Now, and which very quickly left her when she realised, oh no, this is an awful, evil man. Yeah. She, when, you know, Queen Elizabeth is like, hey, like, I don't, I do not envy your glory. You're allowed to be, you don't have to be this sad to make me feel better. And Lady Anne's like, no, why? When he, that is my husband, now came to me as I followed Henry's corpse. When scarce the blood was well washed from his hands, which issued from my other angel husband. And that dead saint would then I weeping fought. Oh, when I say I looked on Richard's face, this was my wish. Be thou, quoth I, accursed for making me so young, so old a widow. And when thou wedst, let sorrow haunt thy bed and be thy wife, if any be so mad, as miserable as the lies by the life of thee, as thou hast made me by my dear lord death. Lo, ere I can repeat this curse again, even in so short a space, my woman's heart grossly grew captive to his honey words and proved the subject of my own soul's curse, which ever since have kept my eyes from rest. For never yet one hour in his bed have I enjoyed the golden dew of sleep, but have been waked by his timorous dreams. Timorous? I don't know. Besides, he hates me for my father, Warwick, and will no doubt shortly be rid of me. You know, that is correct. <laughs> it will be. In that, in that one of those last lines, we do get something that Richard is already beginning to grow con- conscience because but have been waked by his timorous dreams. So he's already having dreams of bad things happening. He's already being troubled by his mind at this point. Yeah, at least, his, at least he's not sleeping good either. Which is a, a cold comfort, I believe the term is. Yeah, yeah, it is. He is a character who has almost no conscience compared to the other characters. But as part of Margaret's curse, she said, may conscience gnaw on you. And that is what he's getting. That's going to be his punishment. I mean, he is stacking the deck against himself in that regard. And yes, he he is a guy who's particularly remorseless. We get that in the next scene where he is basically just saying he wants the princes killed and Buckingham is trying to avoid understanding him. He's like, he knows what Richard is getting at, but it's like, but shall we wear these honours for a day or shall they last and we rejoice in them? And Buckingham says, still they live and forever may they last. And Richard says, oh, Buckingham, now do I play the touch to try if thou be current gold indeed. Young Edward lives. Think now what I would say. And Buckingham says, say on, my gracious sovereign. And King Richard says, why, Buckingham, I say I would be king. And Buckingham says, why, so you are, my thrice-renowned liege. And King Richard says, ha, I am king. Tis so. But Edward lives. And Buckingham says, true, noble prince. It's obvious what Richard is getting at, but Buckingham does not want to make the obvious implication. He does not want to go that far in killing a child. And then King Richard just drops all subtlety and he says, Oh, bitter consequence, that Edward still should live, true noble prince. Cousin, thou wert not want to be so dull. Shall I be plain? I wish the bastards dead. 
So it is basically, and you know, and Buckingham says, "Your grace may do your pleasure." He ref- so this is what turns Buckingham against him is that we see that Richard is going too far, even for the people who have gotten him here. Which is uh, very stupid of them, to be honest. One of those things where, yes, we, yes, we do kill adults, we do kill people like that. It's like there was, I was watching this, um, there's some website called Lad Bible or, so, or Uni Lad or something like that, and they do these interviews with uh, various people. One of them was with a London gangster from the 1960s, and he says, in our business, you know, we, we did kill each other, but it was against our code to kill a citizen. We couldn't kill an innocent bystander. We only killed each other because we had signed up for that. So maybe it's something like that. Buckingham says, well, yes, of course we're killing, you know, fellow politicians and fellow court members. Oh, but no, children, that's out of line. Of Let course, no one and try to fight back first. <laughs> hmm? Pardon? Let them grow old and try to fight back first, I guess. Yes, that uh, perhaps. Because I am surprised, like, I feel like Buckingham... I feel like Buckingham could have played a more interesting hand and go, hey, let's just solidify our bases. We'll kill them when they're older if they prove a nuisance. Like, we can always, we can always brainwash them. Come on, man. Like, but I guess the whole Richie being so adamant and so power-hungry is what's And also here. knowing that he is the type of person who would want to kill them sort of says that this is not a safe man to work with. Yeah. yeah I feel like that realisation could have come with the whole, hey, I'm a, I'm a... Yeah, we don't have to kill them now, though. This is... And then... Away and go, oh, I'm out of here. I am out of here. He even goes on to get... So eventually he does find a man called Tyrrell. And Tyrrell himself finds two... Uh, assassins and these assassins go on to kill the children and even Tyrrell is filled with remorse at having had anything to do with this so sort of saying that everyone in this country has some level of conscience even though they do evil but Richard doesn't Richard has a very malformed conscience still at this point yeah and then we have uh, a scene which is quite long and is one of those scenes which is very uh, thematically key and very emotionally core to the entire play, but which, because it has no real effect on the plot, will often be cut from performances. And this is where the the women, the Margaret, uh, the widow Queen Elizabeth, and also the Duchess of York, all sit down to tell sad stories of the death of kings, where they all go on to lament all the awful things that have happened to them. Uh, was this in the Laurence Olivier version? Oh, no, 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 it was not. No, it was not. Not even remote. Yes. Th- this scene, I mean, it does have some of the best lines in it. Um, like, let's find Which one is- of which is why it's a travesty, because because Queen Margaret wasn't there to instigate the scene. Like, you know, into Queen Margaret. So now... Yes, like she comes be- in and she says... Uh, so she's talking to... So, you know, th- these women, they're trying to say, look, we are all so sad. So, like, Duchess of York and the Queen, they're almost trying to say, come with us, Margaret. We used to hate you, but now we are sad women like you. And Duchess of York says, 
I had a Richard too, and thou didst kill him. I had a Rutland too. Thou, no, actually, no. So the Duchess of York is saying, "Oh, don't pretend you're the victim here." She's saying, "You, you killed uh, my, you killed my young boy." So I had a Richard too, and thou didst kill him. So that's you know her, the Richard Plantagenet, Richard's uh, the third's father, and also I had a Rutland too. Thou hopes to kill him. So that's the young boy that um, met Margaret's side of the war killed. But Margaret says to her. Thou hadst a Clarence too, and Richard killed him. From forth the kennel of thy womb hath crept a hell hound that doth hunt us all to death, the dog that had his teeth before his eyes, to worry lambs and lap their gentle bloods, that fouled a facehood of God's handiwork, thy womb let loose to chase us to our graves. O upright, just, and true-disposing God, how do I thank thee that this charnel cur preys on the issue of his mother's body and makes her pew-fellow with others moan? Now, those are great lines. Those are such good lines. And it's a travesty that she was not existent in the 1955 movie. She would have made it extra perfect. And even there, like, uh, so uh, the Queen Elizabeth, the uh, uh, King Edward's wife, she basically just says, oh, please, please tell me how to curse like you. Tell me how to, uh... <coughs> Don't die. Uh, tell, tell me how to be as, you know, hateful and uh, moaning as you. And she means this genuinely. Um, so let me find this. Um... Queen Margaret, I called thee then vain flourish of my fortune. I called thee then poor shadow painted queen. The presentation of but what I was, the flattering index of a direful pageant, one heaved a high to be hurled down below. A mother only mocked with two sweet babes, a dream of what thou wert, a breath, a bubble, a sign of dignity, a garish flag, to be the aim of every dangerous shot, a queen in dress. Only to fill the scene. Where is thy husband now? Where be thy brothers? Where are thy children? Wherein dost thou joy? Yeah, she refuses. She refuses to, you know, it, you know, in a lot of in a lot of modern things, it's like, oh, she wanted revenge, and now that she has revenge, you know, her enemies are suffering. She feels nothing. No, in this one, she is incredibly happy that these two women are suffering. She wanted to curse them. She wanted them to suffer. And now her only joy, her actual true joy, is watching them in the depths of grief. Yeah. And it's like, and it's, it just keeps going. Just, you know, oh, where is everything that you wanted and loved and brought joy? And, <laughs> and Queen Elizabeth is like, Oh, thou well skilled in curses, stay a while and teach me how to curse mine enemies. And forbear to sleep the nights and fast the days, compare dead happiness with living woe. Think that thy babes were fairer than they were, and he that slew them fouler than he is. Bettering thy loss makes the bad cause worse. Revolving this will teach thee how to curse. Which is, it's, also, it's one of those things where, you know, I was asking before how much of this play is sort of rewriting the previous plays, uh, because, you know, Margaret, before this point, seems to have been saying that, oh, I loved King Henry, oh, I loved that man, uh, when actually, no, she didn't. You read the Henry VI play, she did not love that man. But here she's saying, look, the way I'm cursing so well is I pretend my past was better than it was. I know very well that I did not like that man, but now in in order to curse, I... I try to make my woe the greater by pretending the past was better than it was. I mean, you know, if you had some good moments, you might have. But then again, Queen Margaret is just so petty 
and so vicious. It's like, you know what? I will pretend that I loved my husband who was an absolute wet blanket. I will pretend I adored, well, actually, he, she actually did adore her husband, her son. So losing that was, was probably bad for her. And I'll pretend that everything was hunky-dory that, and everyone wasn't fucking, you know, mocking me for being French and I wasn't abandoned by France, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But yeah, oh, Margaret. Yeah, so this scene also leads to a sort of reprise of the Lady Anne scene, but this time with King Richard getting Queen Elizabeth uh, to... Uh, get the, the Lady Elizabeth, so many similar names, to get uh, the hand of Lady Elizabeth because who was Clarence's this, who was Clarence's daughter, so Queen Elizabeth's niece. Uh, and the, it is one of those parts which is unconvincing uh, because why does this woman who seems to hate him uh, give uh, eventually su- su- uh, submit to him? Um, but also it doesn't seem to add anything to the plot. It, does, it in no way adds anything to the plot. He does not eventually get married to her. So it just seems like this part here is just a failed rerun of the previous Lady Anne's wooing scene. Uh, and one, this is one of those, you know, Shakespeare is still at the stage of his career where he's going to make a false shot like this. Uh, and I do imagine this is something that will be quite productively cut from a production, given it leads nowhere. Uh, but then, there is one part, of, a, a part that I, I like. It is where... So they're they're beginning to hear that Richmond is coming and that Buckingham has betrayed him and that uh, there is an army marshalling against Richard. And we begin to see that Richard is perhaps getting a little sloppy. Like, for instance, uh, let me find it. Um, so he says, so King Richard says, fly to the Duke, post thou to Salisbury. When thou comest here, dull and mightful, then why stands thou still and goes not to the Duke? And Catesby says, I'm first mighty sovereign, let me know your mind, what from your grace I shall deliver him. So King Richard is all, he's, he's at that stage where he's sort of, he's ordering people, you do that, you go over there. And the person has to say, you haven't actually given me an order, please tell me what I'm meant to do. So we get a sense that he's beginning, coming a bit, and also uh, a bit later, we get, um, well, so we get this, well, so uh, let me just... Uh, I can't find that other bit, but the basic idea is that he's getting sloppy. He is sending people off when he's not actually giving them orders. That his mind is not quite where it was, where he used to have such mastery over everything around him. Now he is uh, losing his grip a bit. Yes. And to end this act, this is also the part where Stanley's child, Stanley's son, is held prisoner, which means that he cannot uh, desert Richard. He must fight for Richard. Act 5 So Richard, so the enemies of Richard have an initial bit of failure. Buckingham has been defeated and awaits death by Richard. But now we have Richmond appearing on stage. Richmond, that... Uh, beginner of the Tudor dynasty, rallying, rallying to defeat Richard. Henry. So Richard and Richmond, they set up their tents, and the night before the battle, the night before the battle, the ghosts of all the people Richard has killed 
come to mock Richard and come to praise Richmond. And before the battle, uh, Richmond gives himself up to God and says, oh, may God let me win. Ah, but Richard has this long, has this uh, long monologue <coughs> that is, we'll get into it later on, but it does feel a bit like Smeagol from Lord of the Rings. Gloucester, uh-huh. nah. Gloucester. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then Richard, he says, oh no, I have a conscience growing inside me. My conscience is growing. Let's put that away. Throw it away. He throws away his conscience and he says, come on, men. And he rallies his troops with a, with a speech. And then the battle starts. Richard initially successful, but Richmond defeats Richard. And then Richmond promises to marry Lady Elizabeth, who Richard III wanted to marry, but Richmond says, no, I'll marry that lady. And thereby he unites the Yorks and the Lancasters, putting the War of the Roses to an end. Happy ending. Yeah. Act five mm-hmm. is the only the only interesting thing about Act Five is the ghosts. That's all. That's literally it. I'd say that in the ghosts part. I did like it quite a lot because. You know, I think we've seen this sort of a, p- a parade of um, similar things one after the other. Usually those things go on for far too long because each of the individual things is given far too many lines. In this one, however, it's quite pacey because each ghost is given like six lines. Three of those lines are to curse Richard. Three of those lines are to praise Richmond. And then they move on. It moves quite quickly, quite well. Yeah. And... um. I do like that it's briefly set up that it, this might happen because, you know, in the first scene, into the sheriff and Buckingham with halberds lit to execution. It's like, will not King Richard let me speak with him? No, my good lord, therefore be patient. And it's like, Hastings and Edward's children, oh, I've killed them all. This is, this is fucked. I'm so sorry. If that your moody, discontented souls do through the clouds behold this present hour, even for revenge mock my destruction. This is All Souls Day, fellows, is it not? It is, my lord. Why, then All Souls Day is my body's doomsday. This day that in King Edward's time I wish might fall on me when I was found false to his children or his wife's allies. Da, 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 da. Oh, ghosts of people who, have, who we have killed. Like, watch me. Witness me. <clears throat> Gets killed. So the ghosts, like, showing up afterwards, it makes perfect sense. Although I will like to briefly just go back to Act 4 because I just remembered that uh, I had thought Duke of Buckingham and uh, Richard III made a great power couple and that's probably why they got together um, in, uh, at least I'm assuming the other dude was Buckingham, in uh, Requiem of the Rose King. Yes. (laughs) They needed to keep up the, uh, after Henry VI and Prince Edward were killed, they needed another homoerotic triangle for that. Yes, and they decided, you know what, let's, let's put Buckingham in, because he's going to help Richard, to, Richard up, baby. Especially because um, they did make an ultimate power couple, which is emphasized by Richard going, Hey, um, oh, even Ratcliffe is a fucking Richard. I'd forgotten about that. Um, where Richard is going, hey, you, messenger, go there. 
you, messenger, do that. And the other messenger, and it's like, wait, why are you still here? I told you to go. And the messenger's like, go where? Um, and Richard just has this like, why am I surrounded by idiots? And we also see that he, we see another sign of him losing his grip on himself because before the night of the battle, he says, give me a bowl of wine. I have not that alacrity of spirit nor cheer of mind that I was wont to have. Set it down, his ink and paper ready. So, you know, he, he, he's at the stage where he's drinking. He's drinking heavily before a night, before a night of battle. He is uh, a bit troubled. He is not the kind of person who can be self-powered as he was. Yeah. He's like, I, I need to drink. And also, where's my pen? Why haven't you pen yet? It's like, well, you didn't ask for the pen, did you, Richie? And it's like, well, you, you should have known anyway. Just fucking give me my pen. Jesus. It's like where's, when where's... King said that, that image, that uh, video of King Charles saying, get this thing off my desk. Why do I get to do this? Get this thing <laughs> off my desk. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's the noise of him just going, get this pen off my fucking desk, out of my sight, you grass. Oof. Monarchies, man. And we get to, I'd say, one of the... Uh, the th- there's the, the main highlights of this. I'd say that, you know, Richmond is the hero, um, but he is hardly a compelling character, is he? He just shows up to save the day. It's like, this is one of the ways in which some people say that, oh, this play is actually a tiny bit subversive. Because, yes, it's part of the Tudor myth that, you know, Richard was so bad, thank God we have the Tudors now. But uh, in this play, Richard, he is so compelling, whereas Richmond is just sort of a somewhat uh, cookie-cutter good guy. Yes, he is definitely very much a cookie-cutter good guy. And the movie sort of made him a little bit more... An accent and um giving him a flag i think it is it's the welsh flag right that has the, the yes. red dragon on it yes the uh the the tudors were quite keen to uh, emphasize their welsh heritage yeah and you know it's the the dragon creature of myth and glory um while the boar is um like low to the ground it's a thing to be hunted usually savage its whiteness is unnatural so having those two contrasting images of you know great and bad animals great and bad is a very very good way of describing it um animals was interesting to me and i thought it's like is that weird but no it's it's just a historical thing and i'm a little bit sad about that i mean they're taking advantage of a historical thing yeah. And we have, there's the part where, you know, after the ghosts have come in and they have mocked him, then Richard wakes up and he has as this long, uh, well, not long, but a monologue where he seems to be trying to fight his own conscience. And he's, this, this is a monologue which is written, it's written like uh, all the Gollum scenes from Lord of the Rings. Where he says, so he's, he's in his bed, he's like, hey, give me another horse, oh, uh, bind up my words, have mercy, Jesu. Oh, soft, I did but dream. Oh, coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me? The lights burn blue, it is now dead midnight. Cold, fearful drops stand on my trembling flesh. 
What do I fear? Myself. There's none else by. Richards loves Richard. That is, I and I. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. Then fly. What from myself? Great reason why. Lest I revenge. What upon myself? Alack, I love myself. Wherefore? For, for any good that I myself have done unto myself. Oh, no, alas, I rather hate myself. The hateful deeds committed by myself. I am a villain, yet I lie. I am not fool of thyself. Speak well, fool, do not flatter. So it's this sort of back and forth. It's a kind of, in a lot of Shakespeare's plays and the monologues, we get, you know, the very gradual, the very natural step-by-step um, step of thought. This is one of the few times where you have the sort of very staccato, very jarring internal monologue where there's one part of his mind saying, he's like, Oh no, I think this, and another part saying, essentially this is like a, a dramatization of intrusive thoughts. He's trying to have his mind one way, but there are all these thoughts saying, no, you are so, oh no, you awful person coming into his own head. Yeah, or like, it's not even intrusive thoughts, but the the knowledge that he was denying himself all this time, just building up pressure against the walls of his mind, just cracking through like a broken dam. And his emotions and conscience pours forth to break him under the pressure. But I like the Gollum um, interpretation better. I think that's quite fun. Yes, it is uh, uh, played by Sir Ian McKellen, so quite fitting. I mean, he didn't play Gollum. What wonder if he did, though. But he did play Gandalf. (laughs) On Mm. the note, and also Ian McKellen played Richard. Uh, On that note, uh, we haven't discussed this yet. But, you know, Ian McKellen, an 80-year-old man, and a lot of productions, you get a man who is at the very least in his 40s. Uh, but in history, uh, Richard III was 20. Uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the play, at least, he is 20 years old. Would, would that have altered how you view him? Uh, probably not. I mean, like, um, the age of the character does give um you know just a new facet because if richard had been young the the top scene definitely made sense the first um wooing of lady anne because it's so passionate and so irregular and just audacious while the um if he was older lady the the seduction i guess of Lady Elizabeth Grey, or Nae Grey, um, makes more sense because he's like, you know, take comfort in having grandchildren through her. You know, just sacrifice a younger version of yourself to me for your own happiness. Be selfish in your old age. Sort of preying upon that kind of insecurity makes sense. So I feel like it would this would be a very good play if he aged throughout it as henry should have in his other play richard linklater boyhood sort of thing yeah kind of yeah i guess because then it it would have been a lot more interesting i feel because then there's not much opportunity for him to age because i mean shakespeare i mean shakespeare does compress things a lot but he begins his reign the play begins when he's 20 the play ends when he's 33 i mean that is a lot of time uh, a lot of maturity, uh, but it's it's not like we're going from twenty to fifty or something. 
Yeah, I wish it had been from like 20 to 50, or at least 20 to like 40. Unfortunately, he got himself killed before that could happen. Oh dear. Committing suicide by usurping Welshman. <laughs> but, you know, and so he has, uh, so he, he has this attack of conscience. However, he does go on to put his conscience away. There, I think George Bernard Shaw, who had sort of a, George Bernard Shaw had a love-hate relationship with Shakespeare. Um, but he said that the scene where Richard stows and gets rid of his uh, conscience is actually an incredibly, uh, it's, it's a rousing scene just to see this man say, no, uh, I will fight, I will uh, find it. Ah, so Richard, so according to, so uh, George Bernard Shaw said, the magnetic moment when all the dreadful joy of the fighting man surges up in him. A thing devised by the enemy. Go, gentlemen, each man unto his charge. Let not our babbling dreams affright our souls. Conscience is but a word what cowards use, devised at first to keep the strong in awe. Our strong arms be our conscience. Swords are law. March on, join bravely. Let us to it pell-mell, if not to heaven, then hand and hand to hell. Now that is... It's quite a good gamble to look to your soldiers and say, "Let's throw away your conscience. Keep going. We either fight, we either go to heaven or fight in hell." It's pretty great. And once more, we have that thing where Shakespeare manages to take things which are incredibly similar, but make them entirely distinct. Like here, we in this final act, we have two uh, rousing speeches of the troops, two of those pre-battle. Uh, fighting speeches, one from Richmond and one from King Richard, and they are entirely in keeping with the speaker's character, because Richmond, he's basically it's not it's not that he's, his speech is that oh we want peace we want peace let's fight this war so that eventually we can get rid of our enemies and so we can have peace, but Richard is just entirely motivated by spite the purpose of this is not is not peace it's that let us kill those bastards over there so he says what shall i say more than i have inferred remember whom you are to cope with all a sort of vagabonds rascals runaways a scum of bretons a base lackey peasants whom their ur-cloyed country vomits forth to desperate ventures and assured destruction. Yours, you sleeping safe, they bring to you unrest. You having lands and blessed with beauteous wives, they would restrain the one, disdain the other. And who doth lead them but a paltry fellow, long kept in Britannia at our mother's cost, a milksop, one that never in his life felt so much cold as over shoes in snow. Let's whip these stragglers o'er the sea again, lash hence these o'erweening rags of France, these famished beggars, weird of their lives, who but for dreaming on this fond exploit for want of means, poor rats, had hanged themselves. If we be conquered, let men conquer us, and not these bastard Bretons whom our fathers have in their own land beaten, bobbed, thumped, and in record left them the heirs of shame. Shall these enjoy our lands, lie with our wives, ravish our daughters? And so this is definitely the inspiring speech that Richard would give. This is not a speech that Richmond would give. This is the uh, inspiring speech moved only by a somewhat xenophobic hatred of your enemy. It's a pretty good speech. There's just a lot of good speeches um, in Richard III. 
in the in the literature about Shakespeare, you get this sort of, or when people are trying to give value judgments on Shakespeare, you get these people saying that in the beginning of Shakespeare, in his early plays, we have him using uh, rhetorical techniques, poetic devices, seemingly like a schoolboy, using them only because he knows how to use them and uses them only because these techniques exist. He becomes better and better as he starts using them in a motivated and intelligent way. And that seems to be the case in this play. Yeah. And like, I feel like this is one of those plays that if it had a terrible plot, it would have still been saved by the fucking speeches because it would have been just quite. But then, so there's a. So when it comes to the battle, we are getting to. One of the places where reading these plays, as we do, I mean, you watched it, but uh, this is part of the place where reading the play is not going to be as good as watching it because it's always somewhat sudden. Where it's like, oh, they, these rousing speeches, let us fight, let us fight. And then one stage direction. They come onto stage, they fight. Uh, Richmond slays Richard. Full stop. Uh-huh. So, yes, there's, it's quite sudden. So Richmond wins, wins the day. And supposedly a happy ending. Yeah. It's it's just scene four. Withdraw, my lord, I'll help you to a horse. Slave, I will set my life upon a cast and I will stand the hazard of the die. I think there be six Richmonds in the field. Five have I slain today instead of him. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. And there's just like scene five, dead. Like Richmond, Stanley, just chat. And... He doesn't even show up. Richie yes. just does not even show up. He just exits, dies off. Oops, just knocked my mic a little bit. Dies off screen, and Richmond does a rousing speech of end to their bodies as becomes their births. Proclaim a pardon to the soldiers fled that in submission will return to us. And then as we, we have taken the sacrament, we will unite the white, rose, and the red. Smile heaven upon this fair conjunction that long have frowned upon their enmity. What traitor hears me and says not amen? England hath long been mad and scarred herself. The brother bite blood bl- 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 just fucking goes on and on to say it's now peacetime, babies. Woo! And garbage. <laughs> Richard III by William Shakespeare. <laughs> Sophie, as we usually do, we go around and say, what was one thing that you disliked about this play? Uh, Richard screamed for a horse and then he got nothing else. Shall I take it as a good sign that that is the only bad thing you can think of? I mean, because... Henry got, when Richard murdered Henry, Henry got a last stand where he was like, you know what, I did ruin my kingdom, but I will expect you will ruin it too. You were, you were born bad and you will die bad and just, and then gets gacked, you know? And yes, like, he gets no final words. He gets no final words. And, um, in that sense, the movie did him justice, I feel, because he got wailed on and then he just had a shuddering death, holding his sword aloft in his 
his fucked hand. What is what is the correct term for a um I think he called that well he calls it a withered hand, I think, but I don't no. think that's the politically correct term. No, but no nor is fucked, so whatever. Um and I and Richmond. I I don't like hate him, but I do vaguely dislike that he just sort of rocked up at the end to solve everything and that was that. And so the thing I did not like about this play would have to be the the some the the part where Richard tries to get uh, Queen the former Queen Elizabeth to give over Lady Elizabeth a scene which is just seems like a less good remake of the Lady Anne wooing scene, which has no contribution to the plot and which is just basically not as convincing as the previous part. Yeah. But now, one thing you liked about this play, Sophie. Ooh, one thing I liked. Queen Margaret. Yes, a character who is one of those things, well, quite unfortunately, a character who is entirely cuttable from the plot, but nevertheless incredibly good for the play she is a goddess absolute amazon of wrath and i adore her and the thing that i liked actually so was this perhaps her best rendition in all of the three plays she's been in mm, uh, okay <sighs> Is she the only know. character who has been in all four of the plays, the all four of the history plays so far? Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Well, no, I was about to say, well, Richard's, uh, Richard III's dad, but then I was like, no, wait, he, he died. He died. Um, and Richie didn't show up in the part one, so, yeah, no. Margaret was definitely the worst in part one. I think in in part two, she felt a little pity, but then in part three, when she just absolutely uh, like decimated Richard III's dad, chef's kiss. The girl bossification of Margaret of Anjou. Anjou. Oh, weep, child. Aha! This is what you get for trying to take my throne, motherfucker. And I'm like, eh, yes. Step on me, mommy. And, um... That is the second uh, play in a row where we've said that line. And I am totally okay with this. It's the same character, so it doesn't count. I think um, in the last one we were talking about Step on me, mommy, for Joan of Arc. Oh, really? Oh, yes. yeah, no. You're right, you're right. But we, I, that's, that wasn't my feelings on it. I had to drag you into that. <laughs> and but the yeah. thing that I liked about this play, it was, I mean, this is one of the, the most obvious things to like about this play, but it was Richard III's audacity. It is that his charm is seemingly... It cannot be extricated from how repulsive he is. The only reason why he is so compelling is that everyone knows they should really be repulsed by this guy, and yet he manages to win them over. Next time, 
the work we are doing is not by one of Shakespeare's pals, but one of Shakespeare's artistic granddaddies, one of those playwrights that every writer of the Elizabethan era would have read and would have modelled themselves on. We have the originator of a lot of the comedy stylings of the period, Plautus, the ancient Roman comedic playwright, Plautus. Next time we are going to read Plautus's play of twins and mistaken identity called The Brothers Menachemus, the two Menachemuses. I don't know how to pronounce it, but we'll know how to spell it. It's called The Brothers Menachemus because this is the play that Shakespeare based a comedy of errors on, which we shall do afterwards. Will this be a good idea? Does the comedy age well after 2,000 years? Let us hope so. Let us hope it certainly aged better than Shakespeare's comedy. We shall see, we shall hope, we shall dream. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.